We need to talk about whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to everyone tuning in, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into those questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by American writer, personal stylist and style consultant, Arja Barber, whose work focuses on sustainability, ethics, intersectional feminism, racism, and the ways in which systems of power affect our buying habits. A fashion insider, her recently published first book, Consumed, is an expose of sorts of the industry she has long been part of, and a rallying call to us all to change the ways in which we consume. Arja, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. Um, first off, uh, you're an American living in London. Can you tell us a little bit about your own fashion journey? How did you go from fashion insider to fashion whistleblower? Uh, yeah, so I would argue that I have never properly been a fashion insider. I've always been someone who wanted to work within the industry, but felt like the structural barriers that I talk about in Consume didn't actually allow me to be in the industry. I think the industry, particularly at a corporate level, whether we're talking magazines or brands, has a high barrier for entry. And what that means is it tends to allow people from a certain background with a certain amount of disposable income to prosper. We hear about the people that, you know, the Alexander McQueens of the world who come from working class families, et cetera, et cetera. That is not the norm, though. And I found that in my brief experiences when dabbling within the fashion industry. And then, of course, we saw the rise with social media, which I would argue has aided in the fast fashion crisis that we're now facing. And even in that area, I also saw the same systems being perpetuated where, you know, for blogging, for example, you know, it was one of those things where blogging started as a very like organic community of fashion lovers just sharing, this is my outfit, this is what I love. It was great. And then it was like one day, everybody who entered the blogosphere just seemed to look very rich. And then the brand started to reward the people who were already super rich by giving them stuff, which made the people who didn't have the stuff like me feel like, well, I guess I should just throw in the hat because this is not going to be my area. But at the same time, people were like, social media is democratizing the fashion industry. And I'm like, that's not a democracy that I see. Like I see rich people being celebrated again and again, and that seems to be what continues. But on a global scale, if we're looking at the fashion industry, production materials, consumption, and a linear model of dumping, non-white people are at the end of all of that line. So we have the countries that make the clothing in the global South. Um, the labor force, the resources that's all coming from countries that are extremely resource rich countries, but extremely economically poor. And I can't help but to say there must be something funny going on if they've got all these things that we want, but they are not at the same place economically as the UK or the US. What's going on here? You know, and then of course, one thing that we know now is that the amount of clothing that we've been buying is actually creating ecological crisis and you know people feel like donating to charity is an awesome solution but in actuality charities aren't selling all the clothing they're receiving because there's so much clothing which means that it mostly gets dumped in the global south where it becomes an ecological crisis there and so from start to finish the fashion industry in you know production craps on non-white people but then if you look at also who is being celebrated within the corporations the brands the magazines the media it's also white people so i wanted to sort of spell it out for people and to get people to understand that 
we'll never have an equitable and fair and democratized industry until we start to look at how all these systems of oppression are playing out. Um, well, thanks for that. Yeah, there was so much when I was reading it that I, uh, the book, I mean, of course, uh, that I was like, oh my God, thank you for demystifying that myth. Thank you for reminding me that that feel good feeling that I have thinking, oh, I'm taking my clothes to the charity shop. I'm being a really good person, but actually clearly not. Uh, and actually just contributing to uh, a wider problem, which, you know, that doesn't technically alleviate. But I, I want to definitely come back to that. There was a line that from your book that came to me while you were talking where you write the system isn't broken it's working exactly how it's supposed to um and i was wondering uh for people who may still think that it's just a problem of a broken system you might be able to kind of elaborate why it's actually just working exactly as it was meant to yeah the system has been hundreds of years in the making colonialism is tied to the system has you know, we talk about colonialism, but one thing that people don't realize is that British colonialism in India was about disrupting the uh, textile trade there, because at the time, India was really doing quite well, as a lot of the textiles that the world depended on were coming from India. And so a lot of colonialism that happened in the East was about materials and trade. But if we want to look at something that is uniquely tied to me, chattel slavery was about manufacturing of cotton. So I think it's weird because we learn about these things in school, but we don't tie these things to the systems that we're participating in today. I mean, my mother's family is from Alabama and even you know, today I see how people in Alabama, particularly black people are still tied to the cotton. I had an uncle who, used to work in a plant which manufactured cotton textiles for menstrual products. And so one summer, my mom came home with a trash bag full of tampons for us. It was the most depressing present ever. <laughs> it was, wow. it was like, your uncle sent this. Great. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, free tampons, to be fair, there has been a movement advocating it's, it's strongly. It's very cool. But as a 14-year-old, you're like, that's what you brought what me. Probably not what you were after. Probably not <laughs> what you were going for. No, I can see that. Well, um, I thought that there's a there's a map that you uh, put in the book that tracks the colonial roots and then basically shows how there's a complete overlap, right, between... Yeah the uh, colonial roots, the historical colonial roots of trade and contemporary roots for items connected yeah. to the fashion industry. That is Slow Factory's map and they're an amazing organization. If anyone wants to check out the work that they do, they're awesome. Um, but yeah, people need to understand not much has changed in this system. You know, in the US, one of the things that we learn about in like eighth grade civics is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was a factory in New York. Today, the building is actually part of NYU's campus. And it was a factory that made shirts. And uh, the women that worked there were poor immigrant Italian and Jewish women. Anyways, it was a sweatshop. They locked the doors so the women couldn't get out. The factory caught on fire. A lot of women died. A lot of women tried to jump to their death. It was grisly. And that was a big catalyst for regulation in America. So we learned about that. And then your teacher goes, oh, great. And it's done, except it's not. Because America might not have those same problems on their shores, but the vast majority of the products that we are now buying, particularly clothing products, come from countries where we are seeing the same sort of disasters happen again. Um, Rana Plaza, which happened in 2013, took the lives of 1,134 people. And um, Rana Plaza was a factory that was built and it was built very shoddily over a pond. And the workers had complained about the structure. Like there was a lot of fear that like, this is not a safe place to be working. And once again, they were told, you know, come to work or get fired. We're not gonna do anything about this. Anyways, the building collapsed, it killed over a thousand people. And uh, these are the things that will continue to happen until we get serious about 
fair labor for all. And we get serious about this idea that like, no, it's not okay for the companies that we claim to be good companies to go overseas because they can pay people pennies on the dollar and get away with exploiting them there. Good companies don't participate in that. Well, when I was uh, looking into a little bit of the background research for the interview, I was reminded of an article that I read a few years ago about um, garment workers in Turkey who had sewn uh, messages uh, asking for help. Um, into, into a coat. Into a coat. At, it was a Zara coat. Yeah. And I was um, when I was reading your book, I was um, thinking a lot about fast fashion, which is something which um, you know, you, you talk about the argument in the book um, that I think a lot of us make, myself included, hands up, you know, that, oh, you know, I haven't got much money this month. You know, I can't afford to spend money on, you know, more expensive clothes. And so, you know, fast fashion is the solution. But then I was like, well, hold on. Even the more expensive fashion is implicated in this, too. Right. Because, I mean, I don't would Zara qualify as fast, fast fashion. I tend to. Yeah, think, it is. It is. Yeah. OK. Zara is fast fashion. Um so here's the thing. Yes, luxury can be implicated for sure. Uh, when it comes to environmental harm, luxury can be very bad. However, I would argue that as we have an issue with overconsumption, the way we treat luxury changes the outcome. So like if I buy a luxury item, and the, I got to say this is one of my first incentives for quitting fast fashion, was that I felt like the clothing became extremely valueless after I purchased it. It's like a car depreciates the minute you take it off the lot. Yeah. And uh, with luxury, what I found was, okay, I can buy this item from a bit more of an upscale designer and say I change size or say I just fall out of love with it or say, you know, it doesn't work with my wardrobe anymore. I can sell that to someone and someone will want it. The way we treat fast fashion is disposable. You know, mm -hmm. if you go to Ghana, you're not going to see a mountain of like <laughs> used luxury items because we treat those items with care. But that doesn't mean that that gets luxury off the hook completely with, oh, we're better, you know, because then that's like that 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 is just a classist system. But ultimately, I would say the way our society values luxury products is better than the way we value fast fashion. We mm. treat it like it's disposable and that's a part of the problem. So I want to come back to uh, Ghana actually, because as um, when we get to the point of discussing what happens to these clothes that we dispose of. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I wanted to ask you, of course, the podcast is called We Need to Talk About Whiteness. What does whiteness mean to you? Um, it means that I have grown up and had to assimilate into a very white world. It means that um, I used to chemically relax my hair up until I was in my, you know, third decade on this planet. And those chemicals were really not great. Um, I They've been tied to a lot of things recently in studies, but because black people could not just exist in our natural hair, without being demonized by society because we live in a white society, people feel compelled to do that, you know? And I understand, I understand, but it doesn't make it right and it doesn't make it okay. Um, so I would argue that there are so many elements of living in a white world and just trying to survive. Or even if we just take it back to the fashion industry, look at the designers which are celebrated. You have your American designers, your European designers, a handful of Asian designers, a handful. But can anyone name a designer from the entire continent of Africa who gets to exist on the main stage in that way? You know, like this system of whiteness is literally everywhere and it shows up all over the place. The majority of lawmakers in the US are white. The majority of teachers in the U.S. are white. The majority of football coaches of universities are white. And these are positions of power. And when you have such an overwhelming majority of one type of person in positions of power, you create a world where it is very hard for other people to exist. And so when we talk about the ways in which whiteness shows up in the fashion industry, it shows up um, 
I guess, would you say in multi-layered ways? Could we list maybe some of the main ways in which whiteness is a, is apparent? I mean, it, it's very apparent, presumably, to most people of color. But for people who are listening, who would say, well, I don't necessarily know what, what it looks like. How? What does whiteness look like in the fashion um, world? The covers of magazines. Uh, it shows up in who is selected on the runway, who is the model. BMI is based on a white European man's body body mass index. It shows up in sizing. It shows up in beauty products. It shows up in when a black model is chosen on set and they get their makeup artist doesn't have any makeup for them and says, oh, but your skin is so beautiful. You don't need it. But it's like, no, everyone wants to look their best, you know? Um, it shows up in who is celebrated and in whose voice is listened to. And of course, it showed us up in who is hurt and harmed by this system at the beginning and at the end. Thank you. Um, I, I, this particular quote stood out for me in the book. Um, you say the notion that someone automatically wants and needs something which you have thoroughly used is wrapped up in the narrative of white saviorism. Yeah. So, of course, reading that, I sort of started to think about the ways in which many of us, myself included, justify our fashion habits through the idea that that's somehow mitigated by our donations. But you debunk that in the book. Can you can you tell us why that isn't? Why, why in fact, it's a form of white saviorism in your view? Um, I think it's just really simple. If something isn't good enough for you, why is it good enough for that person over there? Why? Why do we expect that, you know, and, and also the, 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 that's a good wage in that country. Mm. Have we ever actually investigated how weird that is? The notion that if somebody lives over in that part of the world, they naturally shouldn't be expected to want the same amount of money you have, to live off of the same amount of money you have. Or the, my other favorite, it's so cheap to travel there. Mm. Why is it so cheap to travel there? Is it because... These countries have been exploited through bad trade deals and years of colonialism. Is that why it's cheap? But we we normalize these sort of things in our lexicon without actually pulling and picking apart what's actually being said. And when we do that, we have systems that we don't look at clearly. And then people are so surprised when you're like, actually, this is why it's racist and colonialism. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it seems to me that actually one of the ways in which whiteness operates is in this assumption that uh, what's good for us doesn't necessarily apply for others. And I say us, I see, you know, the broadly in Europe or, or broadly in the so-called West, that actually the standards that we have here, other people don't need them, that they mm. don't warrant them. And I, I tend to think that implied in that is... Um, although it's rarely ever formulated, but a form of the the assumption is a form of racial hierarchy that actually there are people who just they don't need what we need. They don't, you know, they they presumably don't deserve what we here need. Um, and I suppose what you bring out really clearly in the book is, is that actually that's uh, something which we're all invested in through our consumption habits, uh, which for some of us is something we do you know, weekly, monthly, on a very regular basis. So um, what about the argument that we often hear made that the fashion industry is one of the largest purveyors of employment and that people in the global East especially would suffer if we simply wanted less fashion? And I know you debunked this in the book, but I think it'd be really interesting for some of our listeners to, to, to hear that. Well, the first thing I would say is that is white saviorism again. Let's go back again to India and the country that once had a thriving textile trade that dominated the world. Who needed who in that situation when the British came over? You know, and, and so we really need to look at history and be really truthful and honest about how certain civilizations have existed before colonialism. And that's not something that people are very comfortable with doing often. Um, but additionally, I would, hmm. I'm like, what am I trying to say? And how do I say this correctly? <laughs> <laughs> Can you ask me the question again? 
Well, I suppose the idea is a lot of people justify the way in which the iniquity in um, the relationship, the employment relationship, the trade relationship on the basis of, well, yeah, it's not fair, but if we took it away, you know, if we consumed less, if we consumed less fashion, then these people just wouldn't get paid, you know, they just wouldn't get their wages. And so, so yeah. My next question would be, well, if you want to keep the system going, you should switch places with them. I bet you someone from that country would totally want to immigrate here, that you could go there and you could work there. We could totally keep the system going. How, how does that sound? But nobody wants to do those jobs because they suck. Nobody really wants to even do those jobs here, to be fair. I mean, we're in the midst of a fuel yeah. crisis here because nobody wants to drive HGVs. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. a separate question. And I, I noticed that when I was even in, like, university. I grew up in a really affluent area in northern Virginia. And I began to sort of think, okay, but, like, if everybody is being told that, like, no, you need to go to university, then, you know, who does the really, really important jobs that keep our society running? Like there was for a while, I remember reading this article about how like there was a shortage of plumbers in our um, area and there were plumbers who couldn't even get an apprentice and they, you know, had these businesses where they were actually making good money, but they had no one to take over the business when they would retire. And I began to think, uh, what's going on in our world? Like we've, we've, we value only certain jobs in our society. And you see that even in who's allowed to like immigrate, right? Like if I was not married to my partner, I would not be living in this country because nobody was going to be like, yeah, writers, let's let them in. But if someone is working for an, a business in Canary Wharf, like they get to go and live in London. And it's the same, you know, we, we view labor in a way where we, only value certain jobs in our society and um it's weird but we need to be a bit more critical of that and i think because we also are that that way about particularly craft and craftsmanship and and you know fashion i would argue that um that's why we devalue our clothing as well devalue the labor devalue the clothing and suddenly you find that you're in a really big mess so let's talk about the big mess that we create with, from this devalued clothing. You talk about in the book a place called, I uh, hope I won't butcher it, Cantamanto in Ghana. Cantamanto. Um, and to go back to one of your earlier questions, yeah, you asked um, about how whiteness permeates in the system. Yeah. And there's a phrase there, um, which, oh God, I hope I don't say it wrong. Obra woo woo. Hold on. Let me let me look up the phrase really quickly. Um, was, was this the one a white person just dead, died? Dead man's clothes. <laughs> that is that that is what it translates to. It you know there's a there's a phrase that literally translates to dead white man's clothes in Ghana, and I think that says a lot about what's going on here with the, with this with this system. That is like just spelling it out. <laughs> yeah. And so so for people who don't know uh Cantamanto, what what happens there? I mean, why why do you bring it up in the book? Why is it such an important location to uh discuss for people to be aware of? Cantamanto is arguably the largest secondhand retailer in the in the world. That is where a lot of your donations end up because charities only sell about 10 to 20% currently. Oxfam's doing good work with that, but like not every charity is able to deal with the flood of fast fashion that we've seen in the last 20 years. So a lot of it is either going to get landfilled, which is a problem, or it will get packaged up on a pallet, put onto a uh, freight ship and sent to uh, Ghana, Accra. And um, there you have a clothing market, but they can't sell the amount of clothing that we're sending. They, on average, receive 15 million items a week. Um, and that is the population of Ghana is not that big. And so what happens then is the clothing arrives, they sell a percentage of it, and then it just gets dumped everywhere. And it's polluting that part of the world. It's on the beaches. It has filled up the municipal dump. And one thing I know, like as an American, 
there's nothing Americans hate more than paying for someone else's shit. And so, like, if this were on the shoe were on the other foot and a country was like, America, we're going to dump all our trash on you. Americans would be like, what? You know, so it's basically a system where we are dumping unwanted clothing on the global south. And because the quality of clothing has gone so dramatically downhill in like the last 20 years, a lot of it is really unsellable. It really is. And so this is why we need a better fashion industry, but we also just need to stop buying so much crap. And we also need to stop producing so much crap because out of all the pallets that arrive, 25% of them are free t-shirts. You know that t-shirt you get at that event that you really, really don't want? Turns out it didn't need to get made. That is cotton that didn't have to be harvested and it just becomes someone else's problem at the end of the day. And so that's one of the things that I say in the book is challenge that. Next time you're working on an event and someone says, oh, let's make T-shirts, teach them about Cantamonto and where that T-shirt will probably end up. One of the things that my friend Liz Ricketts, who works for the Orr Foundation, told me is that often the free T-shirts that they receive are dated. And sometimes the date is like, you know, as early as like three weeks from its arrival in Cantamonto. Wow. I mean, talk about fast fashion. That yeah. that's, that's a very fast fashion cycle, isn't it? Another thing I also heard about a long time ago is apparently for like big sporting events like the Super Bowl, they will print up T-shirts declaring both teams the winner so that they can sell the T-shirts immediately after it's over, which means that in another part of the world, people are wearing shirts that declare the wrong team as the winner. And that is just such a wasteful, wasteful thing to do. But can I also say, and this is how it all ties into climate emergency, climate emergency, which we're all hurtling to through, but the global South is already seeing the impacts in a large way. We're starting to see it in our part of the world too. This summer was wild. But if you wanna know how it all really meshes together, it takes 5,000 gallons of water to create a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. <gasps> to grow all of that cotton, it's 5,000 gallons of water. So if you have so much waste, and I use H&M's waste as an example, and I think 2017 or 2018, H&M said that like they had $4 billion worth of unsold merchandise. So I'm gonna be really generous here and say, say all of those items cost four pounds wholesale. I guarantee you it's a lot less than that, like a lot, 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 lot less than that. And it was all cotton t-shirts and that is literally 1 billion items of unsold cotton that didn't even have to be made. Mm. And if it's 1 billion items of cotton and it's 5,000 for, for, you know, a t-shirt and a pair of jeans, how many gallons of water is that? And a future where we know we're going to be facing water crisis, water shortages. That's how it all ties together. You literally have these companies that are pissing away the resources we're all supposed to share. And then, of course, if you look at who owns the company, it's a lot of white men, you know, and a lot of people who have become billionaires through this system as well. And who are maybe investing on planet B while the rest of us have to languish on planet A. Yeah, I think that's one of their weirdo pipe dreams because I don't think that they can actually, at the rate at which we're moving towards this crisis, I don't think that they're going to have the technology to live on a planet B. I really don't. But it's also, insane that that's the solution. It's ridiculous. Like, even if, like, because a few of them are, like, building bunkers and stuff. I've heard about that. Yeah. Even if you build a bunker, like, who's going to bring you, like, food and stuff? Like, are you really going to, like, farm all that land yourself, rich man who's never gotten a hand dirty in 20 years? Like, really? I just think it's delusions of grandeur. It's like wishing away a problem which you've created instead of just changing the system to not aid in the problem. Absolutely. Um, and, and so people, for what about for, for everyday consumers? And, I, and the second part of the book, I should point out, is all solution orientated. And I think that is so helpful because I know that this problem can seem really overwhelming. You know, part of the way um, when, when we talk about whiteness in different areas of life, 
part of the feedback you get sometimes from uh, listeners is, well, this is so overwhelmingly big. Like, how do I fit into trying to be part of the change, part of the solution? And so you have some very concrete suggestions for people in terms of how we can try and be part of a solution. Um, what the do we first, need to do? <laughs> first thing every person needs to do in the Global North, stop buying so much clothing. Stop. The average fast fashion consumer buys 68 items a year, which is roughly one mid-range item a week. That's quite a lot of clothing that we don't need. And we clearly aren't wearing it because if we did, there wouldn't be rotting mountains of clothing in other people's backyards. So if there's one thing that every person at every income level can do is stop treating fashion like it's a pastime. Stop shopping because you're sad. Stop leaning into the insecurity that you need a new dress for that event or that date or that job interview. Treat your clothing like it's going to be with you for a lifetime. That is one thing that every person can do. There's this big idea that like sustainability is like participating and buying like super pricey clothing all the time, but we've got an overconsumption problem. So I would argue that it looks like all of us buying less at every income level. Mm. And you talk about why we are all so obsessed with consuming as well, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. are being fed narratives of particularly women I guess of, of insecurity um and the solutions are all to be found in in makeup and clothing apparently from a really 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 young age um yeah it's like we're trained to be consumers and like it's everywhere it isn't just in like politicians like one of the things I talk about is after 9-11 you know, George W. Bush was like, you know, don't mourn, don't pray, shop, go shopping. And then, of course, we saw the same thing. You know, we weren't even out of like the pandemic. And Rishi Sunak is talking about how we need to like build the economy by like spending what savings you might have gotten during this time period. And not everyone got savings. But for those of us that did, don't listen to Rishi. He's rich. He can spend his money. Don't spend your money. So there is a very, very pernicious, you know, playbook of telling people that shopping is like your your duty as a citizen. It's not, you know, and then additionally, it's concreted in media. We see it in films. I always talk about how all of my like favorite cult classic films always have a makeover scene, whether it is Pretty Woman, Big Mistake Huge, whether it's Clueless, whether it's The Devil Wears Prada. It's there. There's this idea that you're an outsider. Nobody takes you seriously. But then if you buy lots of clothing and lots of shopping bags, that person over there is going to treat you differently. And that is just patently untrue. If they're if they don't care about you, they're not going to notice your new dress. That's really it. And so we have these ideas that are really concrete through like media, politicians, etc. And we don't really pick apart that we're just being told to like consume precious resources. And that's our, our, our job as citizens. But I would argue you were so much more than a consumer. Mm. And, and what about so individually less consumption? What about those who say, you know, we need more regulation? Is regulation part of the solution? Yes. We need we need all of those things. That's the thing. We can't just say this is a multifaceted problem. It is not just do this and everything will be better. No. But what people need to understand is for a lot of these corporations, these corporations are often bigger and more financially solvent than some of the countries they are manufacturing in. Who's going to regulate them if we are all just handing our money over to the same companies and they continue to stay powerful? There is no incentive to our politicians to regulate these industries. But when there is consumer interest, when the popularity of fast fashion starts to die and waver, when the brands are suddenly struggling to get you in the door, to get you on their website, that's when you get the change. But we need to change ourselves first. We can't just continue to just participate in this system and go, yeah, it's really bad, but you know, there's nothing I can do about it. No, there's a lot of things that we can do about it at all income levels. 
you know, there's going to be people that are going to be like, I'm definitely within the poverty line. I can't afford to like divest in any way. I understand that. Mend your clothing though, you know, like learn. We, we don't know how to mend things. We don't know how to fix things anymore. We've gotten away from that because of the culture of disposability. So that's one thing that someone at every income level can also do. And then if you want to get involved with the conversation, there's a lot of different things happening. And I try and amplify and put that out there on the internet because putting pressure on politicians is something that some of us can do. Not everyone has the time, but I'm happy to do it. So there's a few things that people can do, but I think we also need to realize in the grand scheme of things, like particularly financially speaking, there's always this idea that if you critique this system, you're being classist because you, you just don't like poor people. And that is patently untrue because it's not poor people that actually keep the system afloat. It's like people with loads of disposable income buying frequently. A poor person doesn't buy 68 items of clothing a year. But if we want to get really, really meta about it, you know, when researching the book, what I found was that poor and working class people in America, one of the biggest fast fashion consumers like the UK, account for 3% of America's wealth. So did that money build all of these billionaires? Because I would argue it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so people need to really sort of realize where they're at in this system. Think about like, are you really someone who is quantifiably poor? Because I grew up in a very privileged area with people that were way more economically advantaged than I was. And everybody, whenever it came to like being sort of, you know, held to account with these systems, people would be like, I'm poor. And it's like, you drive a luxury vehicle. <laughs> it's always a relative conversation, isn't it? Um, and and uh, when I was listening to you, I was also thinking about when people say, well, it's a classist argument. I was thinking, well, who's poor are we talking about? Because is it on a global scale or is it on a on a national scale? And to pit the two, actually, as you point out, it makes no sense anyway, just because of the purchase power not being with the working class uh, communities yes. here anyway. Um, I can also say, like, the majority, half the planet lives on $5.50 a day, and most garment workers cannot buy the clothing they make. So let's just blow out. Let's just let's just zoom out a little bit and mm. maybe don't just look at ourselves as like the center of this. You know, it's a small percentage of the planet who is sustaining this system. Mm. And the person that can spend $1,000 at Shein to do a whole video online I'm sorry, but I think you can make different decisions. Um, do you think, why do you think that, I suppose, if we study history and we look at the extractive nature of colonialism during empires, at least when we referred to them as empires, because some might argue that they persist as empires in different form, um, we could see the extractive nature of empire. We could see very clearly that we would go into, and I say we here in Europe, we would go into uh, different countries, um, in in whether it be in, in India or in uh, various parts of Africa, extract certain resources and they would create the basis for future wealth. Why is it so hard to see those patterns today? I would argue that like racism obscures that like we live in a society where white people are always painted as like the heroes and the good guys like you see it in like movies you see it in media you see it there is this inherent idea of whiteness is goodness because we live in a white supremacy and because of that it really obscures the shadiness of history surrounding colonialism and harm done to um, indigenous people. And, and I think that's really the root of it, is that white people want so badly to always see the good in whiteness. And I think sometimes we have to see the facts and what's happened instead of, you know, leaning into, oh, but how can we all feel okay with this? Like, sometimes it's okay to feel crappy about stuff. I felt crappy when I realized that I had been really playing into the system and it was hurting people. That didn't feel good. But it lit a fire under my ass to stop fucking around, essentially, and start getting real about this system. And that's more important than me feeling good in that moment. 
Are there any uh, particular brands that are actually doing good, who are trying to pay workers fair wages, who are not producing? Yes. Overproducing, yeah. There's so many. And the problem is these brands, I think one thing that the average person needs to get used to is that we just can't live in a world of 10 pound dresses and think that that's going to create an equitable landscape in which everyone gets paid fairly. That is just, it's never going to be that way. We have to accept that like, maybe we don't need as much clothing. Maybe we should be buying less clothing and maybe we should be spending a little bit more money on our clothing. At least those of us that can, we've, we've got to, we just, it, it can't keep going that way. But the, the, the thing I see is the brands who are always being sustainable and fair in what they do, they always have to battle against the high street price and people expecting them to match the high street price while not acknowledging that that high street price has been brought to you by ex, um, exploitation and that this is a literal living wage employer here. We want living wage employers. And you're like, well, why can't you sell it to me for the same price as Primark? You know, and so I think that there's just some hard truths that we need to wrap our head around if we want to change the system. And I, I try to just give it to people straight, but also not leave them feeling scared and wanting to, like, wrap themselves up in a blanket and hide, you know, because, like, a lot of these facts and figures can be scary, but transitioning to a different way of, like, doing things can actually be really fun and rewarding. What I found when I stopped participating in the fast fashion system was I had more money in my pocket because I was spending quite a lot of my disposable income on that. Um, what I found is that I have more brain space now. Like when I was really like, oh, I love fast fashion. It's great. You don't realize that like you spend a lot of time on these sites. As I was researching the book, I found that one site had 14,000 different styles of dresses. So people will say, I don't have time for sustainable fashion. I'm like, but you have time to sift through 14,000 items? T tell me how this, I, I found when I unsubscribed, unfollowed, removed the apps, I felt clarity in this weird way. And I also didn't feel like I was always craving more. I didn't feel like I was always thinking, oh, I really like this dress from last summer, but I have to have this dress instead now. Mm -hmm. I just, that went away. And that gave me a lot of peace of mind. And I'm grateful for that. So I think because our identities are tied to consumerism, we absolutely feel like this is who I am. Who will I be if I'm not participating in this system? Mm. And I can tell you, for me personally, I'm happier. That's who I am. Happier and and uh, I guess also I, not participating in, in a system of exploitation is in itself a reward. Yes. Uh, recognizing it, that you're not harming other people just by making decisions that you think of as frivolous or yeah. um, and I say that for myself I'm hands up included included in this problem. Yeah. yeah I mean honestly just just like last week I had a little a little party for my book and there was a moment where I was like oh crap, I got to go shopping for a new dress. I literally had that moment because that sort of stuff is ingrained in us, right? Yeah, like it's, it's hard to quit. And then I just started laughing and thought, this is ridiculous. Why are you shopping for a new dress? You're literally like, and I didn't go shopping, but why are you even thinking about this? You're literally telling the world, stop shopping so much. You have a closet full of amazing dresses. Pull out one of those dresses, put it on your body, go to your party and have a great time. And that's what I did. And wouldn't it be amazing if we all thought that way? If we, if it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to this wedding and I'm going to see all my old friends. I've got to spend my afternoon shopping for something new that I'm only going to wear once mm. instead of just wearing something that I really like and I feel confident and happy in and I don't have to spend the money. I just think that's a better way to live. And we have to sort of really grapple with like these systems and, and what they encourage us to do and ask ourselves, do I really like living this way? Mm. Um, well, on that note, uh, let's move to our quick fire round, if yeah. you will. Um, 
what is your definition of whiteness? And feel free to uh, relate it back, obviously, to, to fast fashion. Living in a world where you're never othered, so you don't see the problems that exist for others. What is the root of racism? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, power. What is the opposite of whiteness? the post-racial society that we say that we're going to have one day. I don't know if we'll see it in my lifetime, but it would be nice. Which leads me nicely to the next question, which is, is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? Hmm. It's tough because we have to get everyone on the same page. And right now, everyone isn't. Um, you know, you still have white people that will say things like, I don't see color, not realizing that, like, I find that quite insulting. I want you to see my color. I love being a black person. Being black is awesome. It's badass. It's fun. I don't want you to not see my color. It's like you're saying that, like, blackness is a bad thing, you know? So we, we had this sort of upbringing within my childhood as well where we weren't taught how to like really talk about race. And I think a lot of people have sort of gone, oh no, no, the way I'm talking about race is the right way, but it's not. And because of white supremacy, white people are often unable to listen when being told that. I just I just had that experience literally before I got on the, the phone with you. I had someone message me from the blue that I'm no longer friends with because everybody does that when you write a book, like people that you never want to talk to again, just come crawling out of the woodworks. And I called this person out on something that they had done that I thought was low key racist. And she wrote, she quoted me. I said, because I'm young and black. And she said, that's all you Aja. And it's super fucked up that you would start that way then that bullshit to me of all people, I think you got on my nerves and I let it show. That's on me, nothing to do with race. You're being a dick. And I'm just thinking, whoa, like this is white supremacy. Like literally just like, yeah, just like, so this is a person who actually thinks that they're a good person. They're messaging me this, but they're not listening to what I said about the racist things that they did in the past. Yeah, it's it's so interesting um, because it reminds me of a conversation that we had with a previous speaker about how um, white people assume that we are the center and therefore that we understand everything better. So if somebody calls us out on something it, that we seemingly have missed out on, they couldn't possibly because we get it. We we understand the world because we're the center of it. And it's like that decentering experience. Like there are spaces that are not our spaces. There are conversations that are not our conversations. For a lot of people, racialized as white, that is completely incomprehensible. The world has been ours. We've walked yeah. around the planet thinking that we can walk into other people's countries and speak our language and we should be expected to be respected, heard, understood and served. Like, so I just think that it it just speaks to me to that inability to hear that somebody understands something more than you and in this case obviously will ne will never understand the perspective of somebody who is racialized outside of whiteness so how yeah. can you possibly call that person out on something that you have no experience of it's actually weird it's it's possible do you know why i unfriended that person too because they got mad at me for talking about how Christopher Columbus Day was actually not a great holiday and like maybe we should start calling Indigenous Day. She got so offended and I was just like, that's it. Like, I think I'm one of those people where I can actually like take a bit of a kicking around when it's directed at me, which is really sad. We shouldn't live that way. But I was like, how dare you speak over indigenous people? You know, I, and so I unfriended this person and lo and behold, they came slithering back into my life only to prove that they have learned nothing in five years time. 
Oh, wow. Well, I, I can already guess that this person is American because I lived in the US for two years and I remember my first Thanksgiving in America having a similar conversation with somebody just assuming that it's whatever it was, like 2017, that mm-hmm. this will be comprehensible and them absolutely losing it and um, and not speaking to me again for the rest of the year. So uh, I understand that this continues to be prickly terrain to put it mildly but Um, also like if you haven't talked to someone in five years don't message them if you see they're doing fine they don't want to talk to you they don't like I I am genuinely okay without it (laughs) that's the weird part about having like a social media platform yeah well there's many attempts to ride other people's waves is uh last one is well actually I wanted to ask you two two last ones in our quick fire round is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism I think it can be I mean I I don't want to speak for everyone I speak from my own unique perspective but I think that it can be yes and I have to always ask my American guests this question is American whiteness different to UK whiteness? Yeah, definitely. UK whiteness is, is it's weird. And UK racism is, it's more slipped under the rug. Like when I first moved here, I actually came to London as a uh, student in 2003. The thing I always heard white people say is, oh, we're not as bad as America because we didn't have slavery. It's just not as bad over here. And today I think people are a bit like, I don't know, maybe things are kind of bad over here. But in 2003, everyone legit thought that, like, there was nothing stinky about this country's past. And that was weird to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I don't know if we've progressed much, but certainly that mythology is being challenged publicly, which at least is something, well, the beginning, maybe. Yeah. Um, Well, I now I just want to thank you so much uh, Aja for joining us if people want to connect with you and your work your ideas where should they go please check out consumed it's out now um it's my debut book and if you were interested in this topic it is a real quick deep dive but it's accessible it won't make you feel like silly because you don't know this thing or that thing so check out consumed I'm on Instagram. It's my name at Audra Barber. And if you enjoy what I do, I don't actually do a lot of sponsorship on Instagram because all of these systems are weird and bad. But if you feel like supporting my work, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Audra Barber. And that pays for the work that I do on Instagram. So uh, that's where you can find me. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, Aja, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you. <laughs>